The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we will be discussing the impact of COVID-19. But we aren't going to focus on the public health impacts, rather, we are going to delve into economic questions the crisis has caused, government comparative questions prices has raised, as well as some serious social issues that are being answered implicitly by governments in their tackling of the virus. Here with uh, me to discuss this, amongst other things, is Harish. How's it going? It's going good. How's it going, Abe? Doing well here. Also here with us is Michael. How are you? What up? It's fine. It's quarantining. <laughs> and Malik, how are things over there? Things are fantastic. Uh, thanks for asking. So let's get right to it. Why are we discussing this and why not only consider the public health impacts of COVID-19? I believe that it's important to consider the economic and uh, governmental impacts of COVID-19 because they're going to be more long lasting than the public health uh, uh, issues themselves. Because once a vaccine is developed and uh, distributed to the world at large, the public health effects of the coronavirus will have been Uh, mitigated to a great extent. However, the economic impacts are going to be felt for uh, several months after the crisis is over, and so will the governmental impacts. The governmental impacts perhaps will last even longer than the economical impacts, having the possibility of lasting years. So I believe that is why that's why it is important to discuss these aspects of the uh, crisis. Mm-hmm. No, th- that's definitely very true. And as we all know, the public health impacts are, you know. Um, I guess the most popular thing to talk about currently because it's directly affecting people's lives and directly affects the measures which people are in quarantine under. So maybe if we want to just quickly touch on, you know, our personal situation, how, you know, quarantine has been affecting to us, I can start with that. So um, I've moved back from London uh, to Canada where I live. And in Canada, um, I've been in quarantine for I guess a little over three weeks now, and um, we're only able to go out if it's uh, essential. So we have to, we can only go out to the grocery store or other essential stores. And um, you're, if you're not social distancing, you can get a ticket of something like $1,000. So it's being taken very seriously in Canada. Um, and it doesn't really seem like they're gonna be relaxing any measures anytime soon. So that's the situation in Canada. Uh, okay, I think Harish and I are both in Singapore, so I'm not sure if we can, like, I can say the same for him, but what I have been currently doing is, so the government has shut pretty much everything down, uh, outside of non, uh, outside of essential services, of course, and um, there was actually a really funny story where, it's, so what they, what the what the government said was that it, it's not necessarily a lockdown, the, uh, our Prime Minister referred to it as a circuit breaker, so, What ha- what's happening is that um, you see a lot of closures and they were like, oh, well, you know, if people still want to exercise, you can do so alone in the local stadiums and stuff. And they they issued, I think in the first day, they issued about, I want to say like, what was it, 3,000 or 300, something like that, like uh, warnings. So it would, the way it worked, it was like, you get a warning first, Then the next time it would be like a $300 fine, then a $1,000 fine, then a prison term if you weren't obeying the social distancing measures. But 
after the first day, after having issued so many warnings to so many people who were blatantly uh, just disregarding the rules, they said, okay, no more. They shut down, I do believe they shut down all the stadiums in Singapore. So you can't, you can no longer go to the stadiums because people were apparently meeting there to hang out. And um, public exercise corners have been closed. Uh, there are no longer any warnings. So if you are caught not social distancing, you will be fined $300 on the spot. So I've been quarantining for, well, I was in quarantine in London for two weeks before I flew back. I came back and we had a mandatory quarantine period of 14 days. So we had that. And after that 14 days, uh, the circuit breaker went, to, went into effect. So I've essentially been stuck at home for about a month and a half now. Um, same here for me. Uh, roughly the same experience, except I moved back a little earlier than Michael did, so about three days apart. Um, one thing that uh, I think Michael didn't cover that I'll add on is that it's also compulsory for us to wear masks outside now. So initially there was a there was there was this um, the direction from the government was that people who are well need not wear masks outside, but now the situation has shifted so that they're encouraging us to use reusable masks as well as disposable masks. Um, cases have been on the rise, so we're using, we're seeing um, an increasing number of cases over the past three, four weeks. So at present, I think yesterday it was 940 over cases found here in Singapore, and the numbers are steadily rising. And there seems to be no semblance of letdown in terms of cases and in terms of the strict measures being imposed. For my part, uh, as my uh, fellow student intellectuals, I also had to leave London due to the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm currently in Abu Dhabi in the UAE. And uh, measures are being taken here. For example, there is uh, a lockdown from uh, 7 to 8 in the morning, I believe, and all phones a ring at 7 uh, p.m. in order to uh, inform all everyone that is in the UAE that uh, the lockdown is in force and it is recommended that everybody stay at home unless uh, they're doing essential business uh, so uh, carrying work that cannot be done uh, at home if you're gonna go to the supermarket you must enter the supermarket with uh, masks and gloves or else uh, they won't let you in and uh, these are some of the measures that uh, the UAE has taken Thankfully, uh, so far, the number of deaths in the country has been relatively low. I'm also going to take this opportunity to get into what measures other countries are taking. I think it is interesting to explore this because there are two different ways of tackling uh, the crisis, or at least that's how I see different countries approaching the issue. Uh, I believe that a prime example of this would be the approach of Sweden and Norway, which can be contrasted. In Sweden, primary and secondary schools remain open, as well as many businesses and cafes. There is a travel ban, but it it does not apply to EEA nationals or those from Switzerland. So far in the country, there has been uh, 12,500 cases and 1,300 deaths. I believe that Sweden has uh, implemented this uh, approach in order to keep uh, the economy healthy. And uh, because there's this belief that there is a capacity for the Swedish economy to survive uh, a lockdown. In contrast, Norway has implemented stricter measures, for example, the closing of schools, university and daycare. And there's also been a ban on cultural events, 
uh, closed swimming pools, gyms, and all service provisions uh, that involve physical contact with persons uh, that are less than two meters away. And so far, there has been almost uh, half the cases in Sweden, 7,000, and considerably less deaths, only uh, 162 deaths. Perhaps this means that the approach uh, that Sweden is having, a more liberal approach to the crisis, has been less effective. But I do have to consider uh, that Norway does have uh, a massive oil fund, so it can support its population during uh, an extensive lockdown, which arguably Sweden uh, cannot. Yeah, on Sweden, um, a few things that should be noted. Um, as of today, which is April 18th, um, I'm quite sure that Sweden's deaths are still increasing at a pretty sharp rate, which is different uh, than comparative countries where their death rates um, are still increasing, but they're starting to flatten more. So that's an important distinction and may sort of um, tell us that the herd immunity strategy partially being employed by Sweden may not be the best strategy. And then also Sweden has less testing capacity per capita than many countries, for example, the US. Um, so this also sort of um, goes into the idea that they may have a lot more coronavirus cases than you know um, they're advertising just, just simply because they don't have the testing capacity. So it's a little difficult to you know refer to Sweden and say whether or not it's you know, a good approach to follow. So that's also should be noted. And then the last thing about Sweden, I thought this was quite interesting, is that um, Sweden has some advantages that other countries don't have, although this advantage is quite prominent in Nordic countries. And the advantage is, is that they have low persons per, per household. So this means that family size is very low. And this can also contribute to making um, the outbreak easier to handle. Because for example, if the average family size is two or three people, you know, um, it's less of a concern if, um, you know, uh, of having one person go out and work and then infect four or five people. At the same time, I think there's also this advantage in the sense that Sweden does have a very large elderly population, which is a very at-risk group, as do most European countries. So perhaps I might also be affecting the statistics but I did want to ask you if you support more the approach that Sweden is taking, which gives greater deference to the economy, or the approach that Norway is taking, which arguably gives greater deference to uh, the safety of the population. Well, I thought it was really interesting that Sweden was taking this approach. And what I was most curious about was whether um, investors would still think the economy is robust enough, is strong enough to weather this approach by, uh, that Sweden is taking. And it seems like they're not. And um, evidence for that is if you look at like the Stockholm Stock Exchange. So this is like um, the local stock exchange for Sweden. You'd expect um, a more pro-economy approach to have, you know, a closer to uh, a less of a decline for an index of their market. But if you look at um, a chart of the virus outbreak and next to a chart of the Stockholm Stock Exchange, um, it's gone down like quite da quite drastically. So if you look at like mid February, for example, the stock market was around um, 1900 points and then it's dropped off to 1300 points and traveled back up to around 1500. So it seems like investors are, you know, maybe reacting now a little more uh, positively to their approach, but at least when they announced their approach, there was, you know, a huge hit. 
So this sort of raises the question of, is do investors really want to see countries take a pro-economy approach, or would it be preferable to take a more pro-public health approach, which um, would theoretically coincide with also better economic benefits? Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with Abraham on this one. Um, it seems to me that, okay, one thing is obviously human cost, which seems to be far higher in Sweden than it is in Norway. And it is per capita in many other countries that have implemented more restrictive measures. So, um, okay, even ignoring those things, what we see is that Sweden still expects um, its GDP to fall. Um, in spite of the fact that they haven't imposed complete lockdowns, um, companies that are doing manufacturing have halted production because of shortages of components. Customers have started to avoid naturally because of fear of uh, contracting the virus. So even though a complete lockdown isn't in place, what we see is that the Swedish economy is bound to, is, is likely to take a tank. And um, the forecast from the Finance Ministry of Sweden says that for 2020, they're expecting a deep contraction of up to 4% in GDP. So it's not, it's it's more so that, I mean, the, the effect of this essentially is not only are they going to sustain deaths, but they're also going to experience the very same contracting forces that other other countries and economies around the world are going to face. Um but what is encouraging is that Sweden is taking on a big um, stimulus package that will put a dent in their budget to create a budget deficit of about 4%. Uh, 4%. So those are encouraging signs in terms of recovering the economy. But as Abraham pointed out, doesn't bode well for the stock market, still doesn't bode well for um, the way the economy in general is going to respond. But that's just the reality that all countries are facing. I actually have a question for you guys, right? Like, um, I mean, I was quite surprised at the about that uh, the US, if we're, we sort of move on to talk about that. Um, I was quite surprised at the about that the US pulled out of nowhere to put into the stock, like put into the, the industries just to pull them out. And it doesn't seem to have done much. I, I, I mean, the prices are still quite low. So I was just wondering if... You guys think that, because I've been looking at that deficit, right? Not to get too economical with this or anything, but don't you think that there might be a little bit more long-term impacts to that than as opposed to, like, this is a very, like, narrow, short-sighted, like, okay, you know, like, we're going to boost the economy for, like, two weeks, maybe, and then after, once you run out of money, then, you know, what, what what's the next step, right? Yeah, on that, that's a really interesting point, Michael, and I've thought about this quite a lot actually um so well first of all i'm not sure if i I agree about one of your premises that it hasn't really um bolstered the economy if i understand correctly if we look at like the dow jones for example um it took a huge hit going from nearly thirty thousand points to eighteen thousand and but it's steadily climbed back up with more details of the federal stimulus plan um coming into action and some could say that that's because of the stimulus plan and i think it definitely partially is and then others would say just because the u.s situation is improving so i'm not really sure what it is but i think um investors and companies are reacting positively to seeing the government sink so much money into this um so i think that 
bodes well for the American economy. But I think what's really important to note is that while it does sound like, oh, I don't know the numbers exactly, but like billion, uh, sorry, trillions of dollars are being, you know, just given to these companies. We have to remember the reality of how these programs are put into place. So if we draw a comparative to 2008, for example, there is something like $480 billion given in uh, government bailouts through TARP funding, right? And there's a lot of outrage at the time. And uh, I understand the outrage, but we have to remember that the government isn't just giving like free money to these companies. They're giving um, low interest loans. So in reality, in 2008, for example, the government actually made a $15 billion profit on the loans they gave to these companies. And I think it's likely that we're going to see similar um, sort of results from this sort of stimulus package. So we have to remember that in the short term, that maybe it's going to affect the deficit really poorly, but arguably in the long term, it would actually result in a, uh, making money for the American people. And even if it doesn't result in making money for the American people, we have to consider that these uh, companies employ many people. Many Americans uh, depend on these companies uh, for their employment. And without that aid, likely many companies would go under. Take the example of Flybe, uh, the uh, British uh, jet company. It uh, went into administration in March after uh, the coronavirus basically put the last nail in their coffin. They were already struggling before the coronavirus outbreak but the coronavirus did hasten their demise. And uh, uh, because of that, many people uh, lost their jobs. So it is important to uh, choose strategic companies and support them during this time of crisis. And uh, Abraham talked a little bit about uh, how loans uh, do have interest, but uh, a government can also require uh, an equity stake in the business alternatively, or uh, if, if that is not required, it can also uh, have put some conditions on the loan, for example, uh, banning the payment of dividends until the whole loan is repaid uh, by the companies. So uh, the money will likely be repaid to the government. So it's not as if the government is using our taxes to uh, just prop up these uh, companies for their own benefit. Uh, there are benefits to society as at large, and, and that is important to note. And that's why I think uh, that the American government stimulus package is something positive. And what does sadden me is only the fact that many countries are not in the same position to be able to offer those similar package to their own companies and uh, that will cause negative effects to them. And I think this brings us to a pretty interesting question. So over the last two weeks or so, there was this uh, photo on Twitter that was trending everywhere. It was pretty much um, a photo of the stock market going up and then at the bottom of the screen on the news it said like uh, breaking news for so i don't remember exactly but like 16 million new americans unemployed so there's this contrast which a lot of the political left was talking about how you know the stock market is disconnected from reality and instead the stock market should go down because unemployment's going up and it, uh, i thought it was a really interesting um graphic and perhaps that'll be the graphic for our promotion for this podcast um but anyways i wanted to uh get everyone's thoughts on that um is this true is the stock market really disconnected from reality is it just these traders driving up the price to make a few bucks or or what's happening right um okay well, when Malik, i think you should go first on this one and then i'll just chip in 
Well, I think when we talk about stock markets, we have to consider that they're not unified in the sense that there are winners and losers in the stock market. So if we see the current scenario, there are certain industries that are booming while others are failing. So we can't just generalize and say, oh, the stock market as a whole is going up and unemployment is going up. The stock market is disconnected from the unemployment statistics. Because if you consider the stock market as it stands, most stocks have... have dropped to half of their value. So while they are going up, they're still not at what we would consider the normal value of those stocks. And unemployment is also at that high. So it's not as if there is a disconnected reality in total. And uh, that is a very important point that we must note when discussing this, uh, well, graphic that has been shared around. Harish? Right. Um, It's just also another thing to keep in mind which is that while stock markets and the economy tend to, in the long run, follow the same patterns, um, on a day-to-day basis, the stock market value reflects the state of the economy because the stock market selectively selects by weighted market capitalization the biggest, best-performing companies because normally we're looking at the uh, the Dow Jones Index or the NASDAQ Index. So um, while these are useful indicators of the state of capital, they're not useful indicators for the state of employment or for um, the state of the economy as a whole. So that's why other numbers are more useful and relevant than used by economists. So it seems natural that a stimulus package that's largely designed to prop up the biggest the biggest companies um, employing the largest numbers of people are the ones who are seeing the stock markets rise, whereas people who are, em- who are employed by medium or small enterprises who may not have that sort of buffer will naturally suffer, which is why you see 6 million, 16 million unemployed in the US and many more around the world. Yeah, I think just adding on to that, it's like it's important to note like who exactly, like what kind of people are losing their jobs and what the stock market reflects, right? So like, I mean, you have a lot of these, um, you know, like maybe it's part-timers or people with non-essential services that are being, uh, like are, are being, uh, are moving into unemployment, but at the same time, like Harish mentioned, the stock market doesn't really reflect those necessarily those companies that those people might be working for. So I think that's why there's that disconnect that we sort of see in that position. But it's not unlikely to say that the stock market might follow that if it continues at this rate. It's just sort of now with like the stimulus package and a lot of companies like a lot of companies laying off workers and stuff, then you see this sort of a disconnect between um disconnect between the unemployment rate and uh the stock market but i think that that's something that comes out of this pandemic and not necessarily something that is always going to be the case yep and i think that brings us to an interesting question as um we all know there are different types of uh economic recoveries so notably there's three different types there's a v recovery which is noted well it looks like a v it goes you know pretty sharply down and then pretty sharply up and it appears um, if the stock market doesn't go down again in the U.S. that we're, it's likely going to be a V recovery. Then there's also a W recovery, which goes down sharply, goes up um, sharply, down sharply, and then goes up sharply again, just like a W. Uh, so this is also still possible, right? And then finally, there's a U recovery. So this is also down quite sharply, but then it's at the bottom for a longer period of time and then goes more slowly upwards. So of these three types of um, economic recoveries for the U.S., which do you guys think is the most likely 
or um, is it none of these? Are we going to be, you know, eternally doing poorly or what do you guys think? I think that the most likely uh, recovery will be a W recovery for the reason that after a relaxation measures start to be implemented in the United States, there's going to be once again a rise in the number of coronavirus cases, which will then lead to a drop in the stock market once again, which will then be followed by a recuperation in the stock market when uh, the, the cases are dealt with once again, as they have been dealt already. I believe that that's the most probable uh, scenario for the United States. If I'm going to look at a global scenario, I think that many countries will not be able to, to keep up. Uh, for example, developing countries, they will suffer for much, much longer. I, I feel a U recovery is more likely uh, for, for, these, uh, for these nations. I think I'm inclined to agree with Malik's W analysis because I think that's what's going to happen with um, the way social controls are put in place. Upon relaxation, what we're going to see is a spike again, I think. And then we'll see a regression after new measures or different measures are implemented. So I think that's the trajectory we're probably going to see take place. Yeah, I think there'll definitely be a resurgence once they loosen lockdown controls because I know for a fact a lot of people that I've been speaking to in Singapore despite the high measures like that are taking place are still meeting their friends right now so it's not really you know like I guess the law kind of you can't really govern the people down you can't micromanage them to that extent when it's so many people that you have to control so once they release that I think there will be definitely be a resurgence in cases but we will only see that in two weeks because that's the incubation period of the virus. So it might not be instant, but it'll definitely be there. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I personally am more inclined to think that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. Um, largely being because I'm not as certain as you guys appear to be that we're going to have such a resurgence in cases. And the reason I'm not so sure is because I think um, I think either we're going to have enough people develop immunity where it's going to be a pretty flat resurgence, so where it's going to be largely insignificant, or it'll will have been in quarantine long enough, um, in social distance long enough for a vaccine or something like a vaccine will be available to quickly stop. A second wave, right. so I don't think the markets can react too um, poorly to that. I think I think it's kind of how optimistic you are in yeah. the idea that a vaccine can be or will be uh, will be developed in that period of time. Because I, what I see is if it's if it, the vaccine isn't going to come out yet, then there will definitely be a resurgence because it's so like the nature of the virus makes it very difficult for you to self-diagnose. And it's very difficult for you to, it's very difficult for you to, like a lot of people, I think when, if not mandated by the government, are not self-disciplined enough to stay at home for two weeks. So even if you come out or like, say for example, you are asymptomatic and you come out for, of quarantine on the 11th day, the amount of people you can pass it to in a short period of time can be very high. So if, unless I think, unless you see a vaccine being developed, I would be more inclined to see, to believe in the resurgence. Well, there are quite a lot of vaccines currently being developed. Granted, vaccines do take a long time to develop. And uh, I think last time I checked, there's something like 30 vaccines all in development. But the important thing to note is that 
Uh, you could have a thousand vaccines in development, but it won't really matter because they have to be tested. They have to be, you know, peer reviewed. They have to be mass produced. So it will definitely take time. Yeah, on that note, uh, there has been one vaccine that has been approved for phase two uh, testing, which is positive news, because if it gets through phase two testing uh, successfully, that means that uh, by August, we could be seeing uh, the first batches being delivered already. I still think that August is a pretty long date, so I hope that enough of the population develops immunity so that uh, we can uh, get to some sort of normal resemblance of our life uh, much quicker. I wanted to, however, pose a question to all of you. So the coronavirus has had many economic effects. Uh, for example, uh, central banks have cut interest rates. Uh, many nations have nationalized or partially nationalized some of their services. Well, uh, there's been an increase in social security. Do you guys believe that some of these measures will persist after uh, the COVID-19 crisis is over? Uh, can I just come out and say, uh, we called it Trump dollars are coming out and everybody's receiving one. So UBI is a, like Trump, Trump agrees with UBI as long as there's a pandemic. So we are like half right. I'll, I'll take that win. Yes. And if you don't understand what Michael is talking about, you can refer to one of our very first podcasts. But okay, on a more serious note, I do, I do agree with what the government are doing. Or at least I, th- I think it's easier for me to speak about Singapore because that's where I am and that's the most, like, sort of, uh, the most knowledge I have on the situation. So everyone in Singapore above the age of 21 and who is making less than 20, who made less than $28,000 uh, last year is entitled to I think $600 this month and so that's sort of like money to tide us over for the month and that's per person so essentially because we have four people in my household well I mean my dad my dad's the only one that's working so he's sort of um, he's not entitled to that but my sister and my mom I think we are all entitled to that so that's essentially looking at per household they're giving away about 1008 so that's sort of like, I, I think that's a very good way for the government to help individual people, sort of, not just like to, well, I mean, a federal package would re-stimulate the economy, but this is sort of like a, you know, bottom to top approach. And I think it works because, well, I, if, you are, if you are strapped for cash and you just lost your job, it would be very useful for you to have. So why don't we move um, away from the economic impacts that we've been talking about? And move more towards the social impacts. So talking about how, you know, governments, um, for example, have so certain governments have started tracking people's phones to ensure they don't leave quarantine, and have passed you know emergency um, bills to grant them more power. So generally speaking, are there long term effects relating to increased government power that we should be concerned about resulting from this crisis? What do you guys think? Harish, why don't we start with you? I think uh, a crisis like this is a good excuse for someone, for an executive um, to put in place laws that extend their powers quite significantly. So just to use the UK as an example, and the UK is generally an upstanding model of democratic governance in general, even though it uses a Westminster system. And um, the effect that the Coronavirus Act 2020 has had is that it significantly enhanced government's ability to make um, secondary and primary legislation. So primary legislation meaning amending acts of parliament. 
secondary legislation, meaning uh, creating new powers for them to impose restrictions on individuals and relying on previous powers um, to impose restrictions on individuals. And it is on that basis that they've implemented a lot of the restrictive measures at present. So if I'm not wrong, you can't go out except for 13 accepted reasons. And um, generally, the police is empowered to give you, um, to, to, to quarantine you by, being, by virtue of being public health officers. Um, and that's just the UK, right? Um, we see the same sort of implementations of executive um, extension across the world. Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel has enacted emergency regulations. Um, and I, I quote from The Atlantic here, allowing for stunning surveillance power to combat the virus. Um, notably, Viktor Orban in Hungary has uh, implemented a rule by decree law that enables him to rule by decree for the foreseeable future, which is problematic. And what's even more surprising is that even in our most, what we think of as quintessential democracies like the US, uh, we see bipartisan support for more authority, uh, more, what's, what's the word, uh, for greater executive overreach. And they're okay with curtailing civil liberties. So I, I, I think it's a good excuse for executives that are already authoritarian leaning to continue moving on their path. And for those that live in democracies, it's problematic because it gives the executive power to do the very same things that, that the authoritarian regimes tend to do. So I'd be very concerned if I was living in a democracy. Okay, so uh, I, I, that's, that's quite a big chunk of knowledge, right? But I just want to ask sort of a counter question to that. So do you, th- is the issue that we have with it, or at least I don't know if everyone agrees with it, but Harish at least, like, is, is the concern that they are able to rule by decree or they have extended their powers for an, uh, for an unlimited time? Or is it the fact that they are able to do this because you can argue that during a pandemic and if people are not I mean in Singapore like there are laws right you can't go out and people are still going out and they have to constantly they have to constantly restrict more and more and more so you see if people aren't following the laws during a pandemic and you're doing it for the sort of the greater good of society then isn't is it okay for them to do it in this period of time or so it or is that not okay at all? Like you don't believe that they should be able to sort of curtail your civil rights like that? Right. Uh, I think that's a normative question. And while I lean on the side of it being okay at present, I think the fear that we must be worried about is whether the powers given at present will continue into the future. Um, and okay, let's take the case of Hungary because you referred to rule by decree, right? Hungary has already been on a pathway to democratic backslide for the past few years. Um, uh, most notably, um, Viktor Orban, after winning a two-thirds majority in the with his Fidesz party, also kicked out the supreme the pre what was at at that time the present Supreme Court and installed his own people into the Supreme Court. Um, so, I, the, the, the thing I'm concerned about is what would happen in future because we're, we're looking at the effects moving on, right? I think no one can... It's very difficult for you to deny that exceptional circumstances call for exceptional powers and sometimes an executive is just more able to deal with things quickly um, than sitting through legislation in parliament, right? And it's, it might not even be possible because of social distancing measures, right? I, I, I think... 
the worry we have to be the thing we have to be really worried about is that is there constant renewal by the legislature of these uh, of these extensive powers? So is there a mechanism in place that says, okay, the situation is still like that? Me being the legislature is able to give you um, this power for the next block of time. So one of the good things, for example, about UK's legislation is that it has a sunset clause that extends for six months. So that means after six months, um, the powers that have been given to the to the executive will seat and if it needs to extend the the government has to go back to parliament to extend it but the worry that i have is that these are the same factors that will lead uh transitional democracies or democracy in general to backslide yeah and as our listeners will definitely know i have a libertarian streak that runs through me so um Initially, I was very taken aback by this increase in government authority that Harris talked about. And I was also really concerned about how some countries were tracking uh, people's phones to make sure they didn't leave, you know, quarantine countries like Israel, South Korea, for example. But at the same time, part of me thinks that, you know, Without this, there will be more deaths, there will be more, you know, negative impacts. So then perhaps it's sort of justified, and it really is this normative question that Harish highlights. But at the same time, it is incredibly concerning that, you know, a government can just quickly pass legislation with limited debate, with limited discussion, with limited voting, and all of a sudden they have, you know, this almost... uh, wartime authority. So I'm sort of torn. Part of me, I'd say most of me would prefer the government to not need to use such unilateral, I guess, arguably authoritarian action. But at the same time, I'm not really sure people would social distance, people would only go to essential, you know, businesses, stuff like that, if the government were not to. So I'm, I'm sort of in the middle on this one. I guess with uh, this crisis, we're going to really see uh, what powers other members of the political system have to constrain the executive, because when this is all over, that is when it will matter whether uh, the executive will retain these powers or whether there's going to be a counterbalancing force that's going to be able to say to the executive, the crisis is over, you no no longer require this power. Because we've had similar measures uh, be taken during the First World War, during the Second World War, and arguably after there was a brief period in which there was uh, a government for some time, but then it receded once again. So perhaps we're just seeing something that is uh, cyclical. Uh, The government steps in during crises, as it must, in my view, because government is the best place power to handle the situation uh, to the benefit of society as a whole. And then uh, there are other powers that step into uh, to constrain that executive power that has grown uh, during a crisis situation. Yeah, uh, and I think sort of to go back to Harish's question, I uh, it's I think it's a very real and legitimate concern, especially for, as he, I'll, I'll use the same term that you use, um, sort of democratic backsliding, right? And uh, I feel as though we have seen this in history before, right? So, uh, I mean, you look at World War II with Nazi Germany, what, what Hitler did was he... he by he won he won majority in his party and then he fabricated like sort of like he pushed people to grant him emergency powers by fabricating like an emergency right so 
I think when when that happens, an emergency is fabricated. When you look back on hindsight, it's very obvious that that was something that the government was intending to do. But I think with this, it gives them it's it, exactly like Harish said. It gives them a very good excuse for them to be well. You know, because of this pandemic, we're gonna have to track your phones or keep you guys at home or you know write into legislation some sort of bill that allows us to have these you know these powers over government and the, its people. So, so I do believe that it's something that we should be concerned about, but I'm not exactly sure how you could go about sort of the, the what, what is the countermeasure here, you know? That's sort of the question, yeah. Right. Um, one of the things that's interesting to think about is um, like moving forward, designing a democracy that has to deal with this sort of situation is something that's in the interest of academics. So one of the ideas that um, some academics seem to propose, uh, Tom Ginsburg being uh, one of the proponents of this, he's a constitutional professor at uh, University of Chicago. He seems to think that it's a good idea to incorporate emergency powers in constitutions and limit them with countervailing institutions so that it achieves this sort of balancing measure of, okay, when these circumstances arise, then the executive takes head and then when these circumstances subside, someone else checks that power and then says, okay, no longer. So it's just something to keep in mind. And even if we don't have those in most constitutions now, maybe it's just a good way to think about how we should approach this problem in general to make sure that executive overreach doesn't extend for an extended period of time. Yeah, that's a really great point, Harish. And I think maybe we'll have an episode looking back on coronavirus after this is all done, discussing how different governments reacted and how their, you know, governmental structure has changed and if it remains changed post-crisis. I think that would be really interesting. So I think we should just finish up here. Um, Just a quick question for all of you. How surprised would you be if you had a snapshot of how coronavirus has affected the world a month ago? Would that really have surprised you a lot? Or is this something that you guys sort of foresaw? Maybe, Malik, let's start with you. I certainly believe that the coronavirus was a serious crisis a month ago. However, I do have to confess that I did not believe that it would reach the scale that it has. Because from what, um, from what I understand, this is likely to subside in September or take even longer for the whole crisis to resolve itself. And that is certainly not something that I imagined back in uh, March. I think sort of my idea of it was if we can remember back to the Ebola crisis, right? That was sort of my idea of that. It would be like three weeks of horrible, the world is ending, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse, everyone's going to die. And then suddenly you never see it in the news. And when I, that was definitely not the case. So I think I would have been pretty surprised if I had saw that. Uh, I I think a month ago, um, a lot of us were deliberating over whether we were even going to go back. Abe was the first one to head back. Malik, I think, just yeah. booked his flight um, either exactly a month ago or like the day before a month ago. And um, Michael and I and a few of our friends were still deliberating about whether or not we should actually book a ticket. And today was our turning day. So yeah. I must say, I really, I really didn't expect it to turn out the way it did. I didn't expect it to be so disruptive. But I'm not sure if that's because of my own ignorance in terms of understanding the the, the the infectiousness of the disease of the of the virus or whether it was merely just uh, uh, like like us all underestimating the potential that the virus had 
Yeah, so I think it's, fa- it's very yeah. safe to say that all of us were, are surprised now about, you know, how large of an impact it has. Credit goes to my dad, who was talking about how bad this would be months in advance. So if I had listened to him, well, I'm fine now, so wouldn't really have made a difference. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. But anyways, um, just to our listeners, this is our first time recording uh, remotely. All of our previous episodes were pre-recorded while we were together in London. Um, so hopefully the audio quality is still okay. Uh, we really wanted to get together and produce content for you to listen while you're in quarantine. And we really hope you enjoyed it. So just a couple notes before we go, like usual, if you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook, also at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you so much for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.